Welcome to the Evolved Caveman, where men learn to be successful and happy with your host, Dr. John Schinnerer, as he shares the most impactful ideas and practices for you to get the most from your relationships, your work, and from your life. Now, here's Dr. John. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman. And last week, I discussed the top complaints that women have about men in relationship. And this week, I'm coming back home to the straight male cisgendered heterosexual relationship and what the top men's complaints are about women in relationship. Apologies to the LGBTQ plus community, as that is not my strong suit. While I have had gay, bi, and trans clients in the past, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about such relationships. And I don't think it's fair to simply assume that they are the same or similar to straight relationships. But that would be an interesting show topic. So if there's any experts out there on LGBTQ plus relationships, happy to have you on. All right, John, back to the topic. The audience is waiting. For the top five complaints that men have about women in relationship. And as I said last time, people don't often share their most inner concerns in public or even with friends. Most men don't sit around complaining to their friends about their relationships, at least stereotypically. Men might go to a male friend when things have gotten really bad in their relationship, but even then, their fear of being judged and fear of feeling embarrassed keep many men from asking for advice. When things get really bad, most men do manly things like <laughs> go to the internet. And some might go to a female friend for advice, but I've found that the rubber really hits the road when they go to the judgment-free zone of a good coach or therapist, because that's where the real shit comes out. And even then, it doesn't even really come out, as you'll hear. So these are all the complaints I've heard, or the biggest complaints I've heard over the past 25 years from men about their relationships. And whenever possible, some tips on what you can do to fix them. So here's the number one complaint that I've heard over time. And this is a big one. I hear it really, really often. And it goes like this. If my wife could just manage her anger, then I'd be fine. I've heard this so often. So before I get into this one, I want you to put on your cap of intellectual humility. This means I want you to let go of the assumption that you know it all for a few minutes. It means understanding that no matter what, you never know everything. And the more you know, the more you realize just how much you don't know. So with an open mind, consider this. I have heard this complaint over and over and over, and it is so convenient, and it drives me a little bit nuts. Because basically what this says is, it's all her fault. If she would just change, I'd be fine. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to look at myself. I don't need to learn or grow. I'm fine. I don't get mad. She gets mad. In other words, if she would just stop being an unreasonable, irrational, emotional female, things would be great. And this is such a crock of shit. 
first, it takes two to tangle. No one gets angry in a vacuum. I've often told, you know, I've done anger management for 15 years or so. I've told every one of those clients, look, if I take you and drop you in a forest, I guarantee there's no anger problem. Well, I guess you could get mad at the animals or lack of food, but it, you know, it's always two. It takes two. It takes one to break the dynamic, two to create it. Second, this ignores the basic dynamics of anger. And it shows an utter lack of self-awareness of one's own emotions. So hear this, check this out. When we are angry, we tend to externalize all blame, as in it's all you, it's all your fault. When we get angry, we feel energized. We think we are 100% right. We take zero responsibility for what just happened. We're arguing to defend our own position and our own actions, and we have little awareness of our own anger. And this is classic male dynamics. And it's just, it's partly how we've been socialized. Don't feel, don't be a pussy, don't be gay. And as a result, two thirds of the emotional spectrum for men get repressed, and it comes out through the anger lens. I've seen anxiety flip to anger. I've seen depression come out as irritability. I've seen embarrassment come out as rage. And consider this all takes about a third of a second to happen. So it's really, really quick. And this is so convenient for us men, it's nauseating. We're either externalizing our pain and hurt as anger, or we're internalizing it as depression. And even our depression leaks out as impatience and irritability. And what happens is the only safe emotion for men to express without fear of embarrassment is some degree of anger. Who's going to question the guy that's pissed off? People are just going to back down and be like, oh, no, no problem. Like, and, you know, maybe you can question him later. But, you know, every time we get angry, nothing is our fault in our minds. So hopefully you can see what happens often in this dynamic. In the dance of anger, one of the two of you gets triggered, which triggers the other partner. After the argument, the man walks away thinking that was all her fault. She could just manage that emotional female side of herself. We wouldn't get into it like that. But he completely misses his own part in the drama due to a gross lack of self-awareness when he is annoyed, irritated, or angry. He thinks he has been calm and rational the whole time. I've seen this over and over and over. Let me say that again. He thinks he has been calm and rational the whole time. That's the story he tells himself. Despite his elevated voice, distorted thinking, muscle tension, all or nothing thinking, heart rate that jumps over 100 beats per minute, and his rigid defensiveness, all of which belie the fact that he also was triggered. The solution, well, one thing you can do is take my online anger management class, which is available at the Guide to Self shop. Yeah, shameless plug, I know. And, and I think it's a good idea for all of us to examine our own anger. Um, I think that there's many people I've met that don't get angry. They tend towards depression, and they could probably use to get more in touch with their anger. And I think the vast majority of us men are limited in our emotional bandwidth to merely anger some degree of intensity of anger. And I, you know, there's lust and stress, but that's another episode. So short of that, short of taking an online anger management class or getting some professional help, 
you can begin to get curious and honest about the fact that you are an emotional being. Emotions color everything that we do, think, and say. Some emotions are supportive, some not so much. All serve a purpose. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. And we need to begin to get curious and non-judgmental about how we feel. Because the earlier we can identify and label how we're feeling, the more quickly we can use that information to serve us rather than simply being used by your emotions to unknowingly do their bidding. For anger in particular, it helps to be aware of your initial physiological symptom. In other words, what is the first bodily tell that alerts you to the fact that you are beginning to get annoyed? Tightness in your hands, a tense jaw, over-focusing on negative thoughts, elevated heart rate, tightness in your chest, or something else. You want to tune into your body. You want to tune into that first tell. And when you sense that, know that you're beginning to get triggered and take a time out. Another way to do this is to order a pulse oximeter, which is a small device that fits on your finger, and it measures your pulse and blood oxygen levels. Wear it around your house. When the alarm goes off telling you that your pulse is over 100 beats per minute, take a time out. Realize, oh, wow, I've just been triggered. Or heck, I guess you could just set your Apple Watch to do the same thing. And when you get to that point, say to your wife, hey, honey, I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed. I don't think I'm thinking clearly. Let's take a break and come back to this in 20 minutes. Now, you might think, wow, that sounds like a huge pain in the ass, and I'm never going to do that. <clears throat> All right. Well, this is exactly what they've done in research. They would monitor participants' heart rates for a weekend. And anytime it spiked above 100 beats per minute, they would instruct the couple, go to separate rooms and read boring magazines for 20 minutes. Don't think about the disagreement because that will just keep you triggered. Distract yourself. And when you've calmed down, when you can think clearly again, then return to the conversation. And agree just in general to only discuss one annoying topic at a time, one difficult topic. Don't kitchen sink this, which means don't throw all the issues that you are annoyed about from the past 20 years into the mix, because that's also what we do when we get really angry. We start kitchen sinking and, well, yeah, but you talked to that girl 10 years ago in that bar and, you know, well, yeah, but you scratched the car. And if you're going to get anything accomplished, you got to stick to one issue at a time. And that in and of itself takes practice for many people. All right. The second complaint, complaint number two, drum roll, please. Another classic. My wife is always nagging me. Again, this has to do largely, I would say, with women's expectations about relationships versus men's expectations. Women often expect more of their romantic relationships than men. This has been a gradual build since, I would say, the 1970s. And women want support, they want communication, they want empathy, they want encouragement, and they want emotional connection. Men want, I don't know, food and sex. We're really pretty simple creatures. But this complaint also speaks to the unfair division of labor, both physical and mental, in traditional relationships. 
in the past, and, and I think this is evening out a little bit, but it's still uneven. But in the past, women have assumed the lion's share of chores at home, sometimes doing as much as four times as their partner. And that's just the physical piece. I, I think what may be even more difficult for women is the mental side of this, because females keep that ticker tape of what needs to be done for all the family members, and it's constantly running on their mental blackboard. So they're constantly thinking, how do we get Bobby home from soccer practice? What time do the kids need to be at school? Who needs to go to the doctor? Who needs to get a dental exam? Whose prescription needs to be picked up from the pharmacy? Who's having a sleepover on Saturday night? Who needs, like, where do we stand with the trash being emptied in the house? All that stuff. And it's constant and it's endless and it's tiring. So even if we men, in an attempt to be supportive and fair, which is commendable, even if we ask what chores need to be done, we miss the fact that we still have to ask what needs to be done. Because who else, who is it that has to keep track of what needs to be done? It's typically the woman. It's our partner who has to keep track of all that info. So it's no wonder that women can't stop and relax. And, and be aware that nagging is a gendered word, much like bossy or bitching. My wife bitches at me a lot. She's always bitching at me. These are often used to describe a woman's annoying or otherwise negative behavior. The wife who's asking once again to see if you've renewed your expired driver's license or picked up the child at soccer practice or taking out the garbage. And when I speak to the wife in these situations, inevitably, I hear something like this. You know, John, I get that tone of my, I get that my tone of voice has become irritable. I, I agree. I get that I'm no longer asking nicely, but you have to understand I've asked him over and over and over. And at first I did ask nicely. And over time I became more impatient. I feel like I'm parenting a small child. So understand that you as the man in this situation have your part. Usually this dynamic develops for one of two reasons, or maybe both. First, the expectations need to be communicated clearly. If they're not communicated clearly, that leads to problems. Maybe there was no time frame associated with the request, or the request wasn't specific enough. So useful examples of good communication with time frame and specificity might be something like, hey, honey, would you take out the trash this morning? Time frame. Or, baby, can you empty the trash in the whole house by tonight to preempt him maybe only emptying the trash in the kitchen? It's, Jory and I had a funny conversation the other day. So she often cooks dinner as she is an amazing cook. And I'm really appreciative. I like to eat what she cooks. So I'm happy to do the dishes. I think that's fair. But what exactly does, quote, do the dishes mean? And, you know, the other day she was kind of laughing and she asked me and her girls and she said, what does doing the dishes mean to you guys? And all three of us said, well, it means clearing the dishes, rinsing them, putting in the dishwasher and starting the dishwasher. And, you know, we all felt good about ourselves as obviously we were right by virtue of majority. However, it's not always about being right in relationships. It's about making your partner feel seen, heard, and validated. 
and sometimes, you know, accommodating their idiosyncrasies. So we asked her, what does doing the dishes mean to you? Laughing, knowing that it was going to be more than this. And she said, well, doing the dishes means all that to me. And it means wiping down the table and the counters with Windex. I think Windex, Windex is an aphrodisiac to her, but I, I may be off on that. I don't know. I like to tease her about that. So I'm thinking, oh, damn, like I just got a chore added to my chore. But because I'm trying to create an environment where she can relax with me after dinner, and if she can't relax because she has to clean after we clean, then it defeats the purpose. And she works hard. She deserves to rest at night also. Now, full disclosure, I only have one eye that works. I don't see detail very well. So I often miss crumbs that she sees. And she knows this and accepts it. So all this is to ask you, where are your do the dishes conversations that you maybe need to have? It seems really obvious, do the dishes. But we have a lot of assumptions in the language that we use, and it leads to misunderstandings. All right, complaint number three, I am not sure what to do when my wife is upset. And when I say wife, it could be wife, girlfriend, you know, whatever, live-in partner. Um, so I'm not sure what to do when my wife is upset. So let's say you and your wife, you both come home after a long day of work. Your wife has been stressed lately because her boss is really frustrating and slightly verbally abusive and maybe slightly misogynistic. I don't know. And the two of you sit down on the couch and she begins to unload to you about her difficult day. What do you do? How do you best respond? This is a really common stressor for men trying to be supportive. I, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of times from men, women confuse me. Fair enough. So most times in this situation, we go to fix-it mode. And not really our fault. That's just how we've been socialized. Don't feel, fix. It's our one classic go-to strategy. And it often does not work well for the females in our lives. Because when we try to fix something like this, it can send a derogatory message that sounds something like, you can't deal with this yourself. You aren't capable. That's kind of the subtext that women can often read from fixing it. So we need to have the ability to switch gears and ask our spouse, what would you like? How can I best support you right now? And even if the answer is nothing, the question itself is very caring and nurturing. So the one question I really like is, I see you're frustrated. How can I best support you? Would you like a hug? Do you want me to help you fix it? Or do you want me to just listen? All right, it's a series of questions, but you get the idea. And, and here's the thing. When you have the answer from her, you are golden. If she wants a hug, you give her a hug. If she wants help fixing or brainstorming the issue, you're prepared to do that. But most times, she will want you to simply listen and validate how she's feeling. And here's where it gets difficult for us men. You see, 90% of the men I've worked with have great emotional depth, despite the fact that we're all trying to hide that, but that's a whole other episode. And as part of that, they have great empathy also. And this means that we sense and pick up other people's emotions. We feel what they feel. And this is most true of those we love the most. 
We don't like it when our partner is angry or hurt or struggling or being abused at work, partly because we feel that same discomfort, often at the same level of intensity. And we get frustrated because we can't protect them. And we aren't used to sitting with our dis-ease. Then our own internal discomfort comes up and causes us to revert back to old patterns of trying to fix things. So what do we do? We need to learn to sit with the emotions we are picking up from our partner and coach ourselves through them. We need to learn to sit with it. So it sounds something like this in my head. Hmm, I'm starting to feel angry right now. Okay, these are not my feelings. These are her feelings. Breathe. This is not my issue. This is hers to deal with. I'm just supporting her right now. Breathe. And I visualize breathing in white light through my nose. And that white light contains whatever I need in that moment. Calm, peace, serenity. And then I picture breathing out black smoke through my mouth. And that black smoke is infused with whatever I need to release the anger, the stress, the fear, the sadness, the hurt. So practice this. It does take a little bit of practice, but it is invaluable. Next, complaint number four. Boy, these are all classic. My wife doesn't want sex as much as I do. We have different sex drives. From what I'm told by the sex experts, that's sex expert for those of you that aren't paying attention, <laughs> the sex experts say sex in a relationship is largely about emotional connection for women. Yes, women can get aroused spontaneously when approached by someone they find sexy or they're dating early on. However, I'm talking here about long-term relationships where spontaneous arousal becomes naturally less frequent. And many women that I've spoken with, when they feel emotionally disconnected from their partner, simply don't feel in the mood for sex. They need the emotional connection first. So let me touch on this other issue of responsive versus spontaneous arousal, a la Emily Nagoski, author of Come As You Are. <laughs> a little double entendre there. When we think about sexual arousal, we often think of spontaneous arousal, which happens frequently in the beginning of a relationship. You know, you've been dating someone you really like for a few weeks. You find them sexy and attractive. You think about them all the time. You want to be naked with them in bed all the time. All you need to do to get aroused is simply think of them. Arousal happens quickly, spontaneously, and without effort. Yet limerence inevitably fades. And if you haven't heard me talk about limerence before, limerence is that feeling, obsession, arousal, desire, lust, infatuation that we have with a new partner. It's seeing that partner fully optimistically. And it can last anywhere from a few months to a few years if you're lucky. You see your partner as all good. You view them through the lens of perfection. And it's one of the greatest emotional experiences any of us can have in this lifetime. I think it's why people relationship hop. But over time, it fades. It's unsustainable. Unfortunately, many people mistake this feeling for love. And some will leave relationships when limerence goes away. So after limerence fades, which is the natural progression of romantic relationships, arousal doesn't tend to come as quickly or spontaneously. And that's okay. 
But what many don't realize is that there is this other type of arousal called responsive arousal. This simply means that you need to begin touching or kissing or stroking the body before your partner's brain says, ooh, this is nice. I am slowly getting in the mood. I'm starting to get aroused. Sex sounds good. It serves the same function, just a slightly different dynamic. This is why it makes great sense to schedule sex for many couples who have gotten away from it. You can simply rely on responsive arousal. You don't need the spontaneous arousal. The other idea from Emily around this topic of differences in sex drives is to have a discussion about what you get from sex with your partner. Ask them the question of what. What does sex mean for you? What do you get from sex? Emotional connection? Physical connection? Stress release? Relaxation? Burning calories, exercise, being seen, being uninhibited, a feeling of control or power, a letting go of control, a way to come into your body, a way to let go of anger, a way to rejuvenate and refill yourself. And this idea of going to a deeper level of what sex means to one another is a great way to have compassion and understanding for why they want or don't want it as much. And hopefully you can come to a compromise about frequency. And also know that there is really no normal in terms of how often you have sex. But once a year probably isn't enough. And twice a day, probably too much. At least, you know, when you've been in relationship for a while. So this also brings up the importance of flirting throughout the day, sending texts that remind your partner that you want them, desire them, are looking forward to hooking up later. I have a couple of love quote apps on my phone, and some days I'll scroll through them and find one that speaks to me, and I'll send it as a text to Jory. Sometimes I'll send photos of a page from a book of poetry from Young Pueblo or Rupi Kaur. My goal is to frequently let Jory know that I think she is beautiful, desirable, and sexy because I want her to feel these things and our love life benefits. All right. The final complaint, number five. Hopefully these have been informative for you. Hopefully you've enjoyed these. This one I think is a classic too. This is further on in the relationship, you know, 15 years, 20 years in, and men will tell me, John, nothing I ever do is good enough for my wife. Nothing I ever do is good enough, which that's a really shitty feeling. So remember that idea of limerence. So when we first start in relationship, we're wearing a lens, like kind of like glasses over our eyes. And these lens affect everything about how we see our partner. And remember that idea about emotion impacting all we say and do? Uh-huh. This is a great example of that. In the beginning of a relationship, we are euphoric. We feel limerence. All our emotions are positive towards our partner. And this impacts how we interpret their actions and their words. They can do no wrong. They smell great. All they do is incredibly thoughtful. Any past relationship they were in that ended did so because their partner was the problem. And over time, the limerence fades. And disagreements and misunderstandings begin to show up. 
feelings get hurt because we're all extremely emotionally sensitive. She shows up late or forgets to call or flirts with someone else or ignores your bid for attention. And each incident is a drop of negative emotion in the bucket. Over time, if these hurts are not addressed, the bucket fills. Gradually, slowly, but inevitably. And as the bucket fills, our interpretation of our partner goes from all positive to increasingly negative. Our lens shifts from optimistic and grace-filled to pessimistic and suspicious. The worse it gets, the harder it becomes to do anything right in your partner's eyes. And I've seen it get so bad that one man scheduled a romantic dinner for him and his wife, five-star restaurant in town. And when he told his wife about the plans, she sneered and said, you know, I don't like Italian. I'm dieting. Why would you even do that? So it can get to the point where even your kind and thoughtful acts are met with derision and negativity. And that's where you know you got to take action. You got to do something. So two points here. So to prevent getting to this point, it helps to be able to calmly and non-judgmentally discuss the spots where each of you has had your feelings hurt. When those situations arise, it's a really important practice. And this can be really small stuff, but it's largely just about hearing your partner's emotion and validating it. Yeah, I, I see that you're upset. I totally understand where that would have been upsetting to you. I'm sorry. I'll try not to let it happen again. Because this way you don't hold on to past anger, hurt, irritation, and disappointment. This is the way to keep that negative bucket of emotion from slowly getting filled. Now, different different situation if you're already at that point. So if you're already at that point of having the negative lens, it's important to call out the dynamic. Hey, love, it seems that we've gotten to the point of interpreting each other's actions through a negative lens. How about we both resolve to interpret each other's actions through a lens of grace and positivity? And, and see if that works. And, you know, then I think there's, uh, there's a lot in there. And, and if it's really bad, you may want to schedule an appointment with Jory and I to work through that shit because that type of negativity, it's going to permeate into all areas of your life. Now, to finish on a brighter note, here's an idea of what we are striving towards. The five aspects of a healthy, happy relationship. And this is taken from a paper in 1986 by Gene Baker Miller. Number one, in a great relationship, you feel greater energy, zest, and enthusiasm for life. So you feel this increased degree of vitality and excitement about life. And you have a secure foundation from which to explore the world. You know your partner's not going anywhere. You know you're safe in that relationship. You know you have a place where you can be seen, heard, and validated. Number two, in an outstanding relationship, you have an increased sense of self-worth. So you feel better about yourself and your place in the world as a result of being with your partner. They believe in you. They support you. They encourage you. Number three, you have a clearer and deeper knowledge of yourself and others as a result of learning what as a result of the learning that you've done with your partner. So the, what you've learned being in relationship translates to you having a better knowledge of yourself. 
Four, both of you feel greater power and confidence to act and impact the world. Again, back to the idea of having a solid, secure foundation. And number five, you desire more connection, more deeper, more intense, more intimate connection with your partner. So in closing, let me say, if you're struggling with your partner, feel free to take a look at our site, theultimaterelationship.com, where you can find out more about the services that Jory and I offer. I really love the idea that love is not enough because we're fed so many fairy tales about relationships, yet no one ever really teaches us the skills we need to succeed in relationship. We get stuff like the prince meets the beautiful woman, they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. The problem with that story is love is not enough. It's a great starting point, but we all need to learn the tools to communicate, validate, and support. So in wrapping up, thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be helpful in some way, please leave a rating, share it on social media. Hell, shout it from the rooftops. Uh, We have to save relationships. We have to save our species. And if you didn't like this episode, you're good. You can go back to self-medicating. Until next time, this is Dr. John signing off. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 